Welcome to the Product Marketing Life Podcast, brought to you by the Product Marketing Alliance and hosted by me, Mark Cassini, Product Marketing Manager at Jobber. Every two weeks, I pull insights from some of the world's most talented product marketers who uncover the secret sauce of successful product marketing. We finally made it to the end of 2023. And just like last year, I'd like to finish this season off with a look back at some of my favorite conversations from the last 12 months. Narrowing down the list to just a handful of clips was incredibly hard as everyone I've had on the show this year had some great nuggets to share. Despite that, here are my top sound bites from season two. All right, with that out of the way, let's dive in. It's not often I get to speak with product marketing LinkedIn royalty on the show. And in this clip, you'll hear exactly why Robert Kaminsky, partner at Fletch, is considered to be part of that exclusive club. Hear him overview the process he recommends horizontal products take in thinking about how to nail their go-to-market strategy. I call these kind of the, the four go-to-market phases for uh, horizontal products. And so the first one is your, your experimental go-to-market. You're likely pre-seed or seed. You have this idea of a problem area. You've got a form of a product or MVP. You don't really know who it's best for. Uh, so imagine being like Airtable in the early days. It's like, man, this could be used for anything. And so they're out there. They're talking to content creators and video producers and people running timeline tracking and project. They're talking to everybody and just seeing like other use cases. So from that broad experimentation, eventually you want to prioritize and pick one. Sometimes it creeps into two or three into a targeted go to market. That's where you say, hey, we have enough traction and focus. Our product aligns really well with this persona and use case where it's time to double down and operationalize. Um, so this is where you get a little more formality in your go to market. You have set up cadences and scripts. Your segmentation is really clean and you build up all the materials around the product to serve that use case. So that's that's your first phase of growth in the targeted go to market. From there, you use the the revenue ultimately and the success. And sometimes it'll come through funding because you'll be showing great results in that targeted good market. And sometimes it's just, I like the more organic fund your next go to market segment with the one that you just operationalize where you start to go broad. And so that's where like Airtable, let's say that they, and I don't know their exact story, but let's say that they started with content creators and that content calendar in a visual way. And they, they then operationalize that as a targeted go to market. Well, they might move over to a different type of content creator or someone on the marketing side who's looking at content a little differently where the use case is tweaked and operationalize those multiple targeted go-to-markets. And so we've moved from experimentation to targeted to multiple targeted. And then the fourth phase, which I have it as a fourth phase, but it's really something that starts to get built after you operationalize a single segment and it's the expansion go-to-market. And what's different here in all those materials I talked about to get someone acquired and retained in your product, this goes a little bit further into true expansion. And so think more customer success playbooks, really thinking and being mindful about product-led growth loops and how you share and expand. And the focus in that expansion go-to-market phase is LTV growth, not net new revenue growth. Um, and the, these companies are successful ultimately because of that expansion growth, like moving up into the enterprise like we see. Uh, that's why PLG has been a big thing. And people, what they don't realize is that that is a long journey. It's not a page you stand up on your site. Oh, there's a free version now and you're good to go. Like this goes all into uh, solving for go-to-market. So summarize, experimentation go-to-market, moving into a targeted, prioritized go-to-market for a beachhead, expanding to other beachhead and operationalizing those as you go. And then meanwhile, working on your expansion go-to-market, which is retention playbooks and LTV. 
Yeah. And honestly, I love that framework so much. And it really was the impetus for me reaching out to get having you on the show because I think it's so clean and so clear and, and easy to understand. And I think as a product marketer, you could take that to anybody within the org and explain it to them and they would get it. It wouldn't have to be your product marketer to be like, oh yeah, I understand how this makes sense. Like anybody across the org can hear that and be impressed, I think. Um, and I love that you framed that in the example of ClickUp. ClickUp. Um, and I think you've seen it and we mentioned some of these other companies, ClickUp, Notion, Airtable, or sorry, you use Airtable. Um, I'll, I'll throw forward mm -hmm. uh, ClickUp. But I remember when, I forget which of the three launched, seeing it and thinking like, okay, I get that this could be very powerful, but I get the vibe that they don't really know at that stage who is the most powerful for. And, and it felt, and again, I'm not gonna call out which specific one, mainly because I don't remember, um, but it, it just felt like a little bit of, not wishy-washy, but again, that idea of trying to be all things to all people. And I remember leaving the website being like, I don't know, like this isn't for me. Yeah. Um, and again, that could have just been where they were at the stage of their growth and they weren't targeting product marketers or someone like me. But I, I think, you know, had they, or maybe they have applied that framework as you've outlined it, you can, you can start to see how they can, you know, chart that path forward to, to going yeah. from all things to all people to starting with one very targeted go-to-market motion, finding success, replicating it, and then once they've repl replicated across all the segments and personas that they've targeted or identified, starting to then focus on this idea of expansion and LTV. So yeah, just wanted to reiterate how much I love that framework and, and how applicable it is. Yeah, one thing that might be useful too is like, it's clean as a framework, it's messy in the jumps. And I think that's what you're hitting on. So when you move from experimentation to targeted, there is a lot of, call it product sense or like market intuition, but ideally, that's why you're a founder or you're attached to the founder. You're so close that you have to make that kind of leap of faith first decision to do targeted. Now, there should be data to back it up, but it's the most loose there. And then where the, the next edge sort of happens is when you do the multiple targeted. Usually you've seen growth. You're like, you're then like, okay, we're in the good ARR state. We've got more funding. VCs and founders see that and they say, hey, you guys have operationalized around this segment. There's all these untapped segments go turn them on. And in theory, they're right. Operationally, not so much because the, what you're, the core assumption in there is that the same playbook is going to work for this different persona. It's either different persona, same use case or different use case, same persona. Not always the case. We, the way we describe it is when you're a horizontal product, there's no such thing as product market fit for your whole product. What you really have are a collection of product market fits, plural. Uh, and so the, the second one, the risk there when you're doing the multiple targeted is just assuming that you can win because you've won another segment. It's a separate journey to operationalize. Uh, and so that's the secondary caution when you're moving uh, past that initial scale phase. One thing I heard time and time again this year was the need for product marketers to demonstrate and quantify their impact. It's for that reason I've selected this clip from Zoe Mork, marketing manager at logs.io. In it, she shares her approach to demonstrating impact in a role that doesn't always get tied to quantifiable metrics. I'm in a number of customer marketing communities as well as product marketing communities. And one of the conversations that I've seen a lot, a lot of people are asking questions around how you prove the value of your customer marketing efforts. So if customer marketing is pivoting from this content advocacy focus to this demand generation, go-to-market pipeline growth focus, 
there is more need to prove the value of the advocacy efforts to prove that they are demand gen materials and strategies and tactics. So there's always a conversation happening about how do we say that this case study drove however many dollars instead of so instead of having success be measured by you know I got seven new case studies this year and I got us from a 4.3 to a 4.6 on whatever review site it's saying because we're a 4.6 on this review site these 10 customers or the, these 10 logos became customers and it's it is a challenging value proposition. It requires a lot of conversation um, with sales one-on-one. -on -one. That kind of thing is very hard to track like via traditional UTM, Salesforce, witchcraft that I, <laughs> I let other people deal with. But at least every other day, someone is asking like, how do you prove that these, uh, these customer marketing activities are creating value, measurable value for your company? Um, and, and I think that's because of the economic climate to a certain extent, you know, we're all trying to prove that we're as valuable as possible. Um, but also it's just because marketing is almost always, I mean, especially since I've come up through the demand gen side of things, it's always about measuring everything. And a lot of times when we have conversations as like, I have this conversation with our digital marketing manager a lot. And then it's always like mind blowing to talk to a content marketing manager and hear that their brain isn't in the same place at all. But we almost don't want to do things if we can't measure exactly what the effect is, um, which is totally different um, to a, a lot of marketing conversations and mind space. So I think that just there, this constant need to prove via measurable metrics that all of your activities are valuable is really important specifically right now. Yeah, absolutely. And then again, I think you're right. I think an element of that is being driven by the economic climate and, you know, the kind of pressure on businesses to quantify the impact of their activities and even specific roles. But I think too, if I can pose an, uh, another reason why that might be the case is Customer marketing, again, to my knowledge, is a relatively new function. Like I think about where product marketing was, as I said earlier, two to three years ago, being kind of the new marketing kid on the block. I remember similar questions being asked in various communities and even, you know, amongst fellow product marketers. You know, I'm the solo product marketer. I'm new to the marketing team. How do I demonstrate impact within the first, you know, 60, 90 days? How can I quantify the things that I'm doing when I'm building user personas and, you know, doing competitive intel? And I think that's just the nature of being a relatively new function is okay, you're new here. You know, we want to start seeing results. What are those results? And figuring out how to quantify them, I think is just a, a challenge that's inherent of, of, of that. It wouldn't be a highlight show if I didn't pull a clip from our most listened to episode this year. In this next soundbite, you'll hear Devin O'Rourke, founding and managing partner at Fluvio, explain why companies often fail due to their inability to sustain and repeat successful product and feature launches. I think there's a lack of repeatability in a go-to-market process that most companies have. And so you find that there's individual product marketers going through this linear process to launch a product. When it's done, they sort of wipe their hands clean and they're not necessarily learning and reverting that knowledge back into improving the next launch. And that was you know, a hypothesis, a hypothesis we had. And it's something we identified in a number of clients and when we built the model, it became very apparent to us that a go-to-market process is very much cyclical in nature. 
And so what that means is there is this feedback loop or this crank in the model that you're taking learnings post-launch and you're feeding that back into the inbound motion of a go-to-market process so that you're constantly learning and it's an iterative process. So you can think very tangibly personas. I can't tell you how many times we go into a client engagement and they say, we have personas. I think they were created a couple of years ago. They haven't really been updated, so no one really uses them. Well, that that's a pretty good signal that your go-to-market process is linear in nature and that you're not going back and refining. Um, and that's that's just one example, but there, there's a lot of um, instances in which cause problems if you're not you know, taking learnings, you're, you're throwing them back into the inbound motion and you're constantly refining. If you do that well, you'll find that you're able to move much quicker and that um, there are a lot of uh, learnings that are, are not dropped. And then what advice do you have for, you know, product marketers who find themselves in a situation where you're going through this linear process, you know, they're going from one go-to-market execution to another, and they, they don't necessarily take the time or have the tools available to them to, to generate or start that flywheel and, and kind of take those feedbacks in. Are there specific tools or processes that you've you know seen work with clients or that you've recommended clients adopt to make sure that that feedback is getting captured and applied? Because again, as we said earlier, it's easy to say it in theory, but in practice, sometimes that can be more challenging. Sure. There's a couple things here. I mean, one is there's an element of change management, which I referred to earlier, especially at these large enterprise businesses, but frankly, pretty much across the board. So oftentimes in order to install a go-to-market model and process like that, you have to go through roles and responsibilities, identification and training, and make sure that leaders are on board and that that's disseminated down into their organizations. Um, so I think that's that's paramount. From a tooling perspective, you know, I'll do a shout out to Ignition. I think Ignition is a tool that's built around this approach. They're just, you know, still in the early innings, but I have a lot of, of, of high hopes for Ignition. And I think what they've already built in the early days is really impressive. Um, but ultimately, it sort of does fall on the product marketers. The really great product marketers are doing this inherently. And... Um, they're taking learnings into account and that and they're embedding them into personas and messaging and positioning. And they're they recognize that this is something that changes over time. Um, you know, you can think with um OpenAI and ChatGPT, like right now, every single MarTech company should be looking at their positioning. And that's just one example of as things occur in market and as you launch products that needs to be infused into your ongoing inbound motion. Win-loss is a topic we hear a lot about in product marketing. While it's pretty easy to explain what it is, I find this explanation of what it's not from Ryan Queller, Chief Delivery Officer at True Voice from Corporate Visions, to be really enlightening. Let's listen to Ryan now. What win-loss is not Win-loss is not the only research that you should ever do. <laughs> okay, don't stop at win-loss. Also, don't avoid win-loss. Having Inviting the voice of your customer to be heard and megaphoned is paramount. However, win-loss has a, a fairly uh, purpose-built, um, it, well, it's purpose-built. Win-loss is exactly what it, in, in its, its title, what it is. It is to help us understand why a person that you were selling to made the decision that they made. 
right? There's typically four areas that drive decisions Four, you know, in, in primary intelligence, now corporate visions has been doing win-loss analysis for 22 years, right? A long, long time, really kind of the industry gold standard around, standard around win-loss. And there's four kind of categorical areas that almost every time or invariably come up. That is, um, how did X company compete against the other vendor, right? How did the vendors compete against each other in price, product, sales motion, and company? Um, now, when I say company, that means things like um, references or deliver what was sold or some ongoing support, those types of things. Um, now, what win-loss is, is understanding how those four categorical areas interplay to help drive a decision. What it is not, win-loss analysis is not product, a deep, deep product review. You'll get some product information, but you'll see a lot of product marketers and a lot of product folks go, hey, that's not deep enough in the product. And of course it's not, because what we're talking about and focusing on are people's decision-making process. Now it's easy to then rabbit hole down. Well, isn't the product and the feature functionality of the product part of the decision-making? Yes. However, we've also found, and there's other research outside of our own beliefs, There's, there's um, we have found that people's decisions don't always go with the best product. The best product, or you know, think of it like if you're playing poker, the best hand doesn't always win, right? In fact, it's the skill of the poker player that drives the wins more often than not. In fact, we saw a study, I, I was reading a study uh, that was conducted several years ago uh, where somebody wanted, an organization wanted to understand, is poker a, a, a game of chance or a game of skill? And from the research, they studied 103 million hands of online poker, 103 million. and I'm going to break it down and nuance it a little bit in circumstances where the stakes were higher and there was no showdown, meaning they didn't flop their cards to reveal their cards after the hand was won. Only 20% of the time did the winning hand actually win the best hand win. It was the 80% of the time. It was the decisions and the behavior of the, and the skills of the poker player that drove the win. And it's no different. We have, we have data that suggests it's no different in win-loss. It's not about the best product. It's about the, the ability of the human to connect with the other human, right? The person that has a problem and my ability to demonstrate as a salesperson um, that we can not only solve the problem, but we get you and we're going to solve that problem today and tomorrow, the now and later effect. So what win-loss analysis is not not deep product. It's some product and some of the some of the organizations that we do the research for do get a good amount of product, but it's not solely that. It is also not meant to be a uh, divisive tool. Anybody listening to me right now that is running win-loss, if you are using win-loss as a means of, you know, punching down on people, you are failing and you are failing miserably. So win-loss is not meant to be a, and if you're employing it to stop it, stop now. Um, it's not meant to be a, a punishment tool. It is meant to reveal areas of potential improvement that can uh, benefit both the customer that you're selling to and, and your people 
uh, through which we're doing the research. So I would say those are probably the the top two things that that win loss or not. Um, And what it is, is literally an exploration into the the way that people make decisions. So back to psychology, right? So how are people making decisions? That's what it is. That's what it's not. While we regularly discuss the differences between being a product marketer at a small company versus a big one, we don't often talk about what it's like to be a PMM on a truly global scale. It's for that reason I've selected this clip from Olga Lal, Product and Growth Marketing Manager at Google, in which she explains the differences between being a local, regional, and global PMM. Yeah, and obviously every role has its own, you know, advantages and disadvantages. And it all, first of all, want to know that it all really depends on the type of personality you are. So like the disadvantages that I might highlight, they might be actually advantages for you. So obviously very, very subjective opinion. But from my experience, at least when you're in a local team, when you're a local PMM, you have the full ownership of the market. Like you are the expert, you you manage all the new launches coming to your market, you know the user inside out, like you know it all, you're the full, full uh, owner of the area you're working on. But at the same time, you're always in the pitching mode, kind of like because the budgets are usually distributed globally, the product managers might not sit in your country. So you're always kind of pitching, protecting your markets, making sure that it's important, it's interesting for the global teams. Which is, you know, for me, I found it hard, but at the same time, that's how startups work. That That's the usual startup environment. You have to be great at pitches. So that could be an advantage as well. Then at the reg- as a regional PMM, which is my role right now, um, I find that it takes a lot of obviously, you know, coordinating because, for example, I work in EMEA region, which is Europe, Middle East and Africa, all very different and interesting countries. And you somehow have to build this like regional strategy based on that. So that's like quite exciting, quite a lot of coordination between all the markets involved, for sure. And also a lot of cross-functional collaboration. Like I feel like at the regional level, you work much more with finance functions, with like go-to-market functions and other ones than in the global team where you sit so far apart that you don't like even see each other sometimes maybe. So that's that's for sure a distinctive, like let's say difference of the regional role. And then finally, as a global PMM, I feel like you go really deeply into one topic. So for example, you could be working on growth marketing and you become like fully an expert on this topic. So it's less ownership, but much deeper expertise uh, in some areas. And I guess you just like, it's interesting to be in a global role because you define the global strategy, you know, you work with product managers, the closest. So yeah, that was definitely an advantage advantage for me. But what's interesting about, like, I keep talking about differences of these roles, but when we actually raised this topic during the Product Marketing Alliance Summit in Amsterdam back in May, we had a round table about this topic. And what was interesting is that all the PMMs actually came with a question. So, okay, we know these differences, advantages, disadvantages, but how do we build the effect of collaboration between our teams? Like the hottest topic was how do local, regional and global PMMs actually work together and how to build like a full cycle of collaboration there. And that was interesting interesting for me that like, I think realizing advantages and disadvantages is important for building the collaboration. And that's the main goal. Uh, that's the hottest topic among PMMs right now, as I, as I heard on the summit. 
Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And when you're operating at that level of scale and, and geographic reach, collaboration mm-hmm. is what I would imagine is going to make or break a successful launch or go-to-market strategy or just broader product marketing strategy for the entire business. So that, that makes a ton of sense. And I'm, I'm curious at Google, is a progression pretty standard? Like, do you start as local, go regional, and then elevate to global? Or do you jump around, you know, between those three levels, depending on what your interests are, what your, you know, location is? I'm curious how that plays out. Yeah, this really depends on uh, individual PMM. It, it's not, it's not a hierarchy. Sorry, <laughs> it's it's not a hierarchy. So it's not like the global PMM has more authority than the local one. Definitely not like that. Uh, I would say we all work as equal partners, and it really depends on your own individual interests and career goals where you want to be. Like. For example, for me, it was important to get all the types of experience. I wanted to see, you know, how it's like to be a local, regional, global PMM. And that's why I prioritize it for myself. But definitely it's it's not a career track that is, uh, I don't know, standard at Google or something like that. And I find it so interesting that even as a regional PMM, you're responsible for such a huge region that is so incredibly diverse. And I'm curious. How do you even begin to approach that level of diversity in your customer base when you're, you know, you're talking about Europe, Middle East, Africa, like that's almost, that's almost the entire planet, <laughs> obviously excluding North America and, you know, pockets of Asia. Uh, but like that, to some people that would feel global in and of itself. So how do you approach that level of diversity amongst that region? Yeah, and I think that all comes down to prioritization. So as a regional PMIM, I think everyone understands, you know, you might be, one resource for this region or like a few people for this region so you cannot possibly cover everything so you define your priority products and then priority markets for this product and that's how you try to structure your scope otherwise yes it's 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 a lot as you mentioned uh so yeah and it's also important uh to have some local representation in local markets so and staying in touch with these local pmms as well for sure, because they're the experts, they have the full ownership of their markets for sure. And that's very, very, very important to stay in touch with them. And do you have regular touch points with those local PMMs? Are they on a monthly, quarterly basis, or do they just tend to kind of pick up as you approach a launch? Yeah. Um, we definitely have like monthly, I think, touch points for sure. And if depending on the launch, if there is some active project going on, we might do it much more in a regular basis. Or if it's a priority market for some specific product, we'll be uh, talking daily, weekly or whatever cadence is needed. But definitely as a baseline, we do have at least monthly touch points with all the local representatives that we have. At some point in your product marketing career, you'll likely need to pick between being a solo PMM and a PMM within a larger product marketing team. While the differences between both may seem obvious, I really enjoyed this unique perspective on that exact topic from Studi Dutt, Head of Product Marketing at Compass Digital, and Kevin Chan, Director of Product Marketing at Felidio. So I'll start with being a a solo solo product marketer. Um, I think when when it comes to the pros of of being a a solo PMM in an organization, uh, I think in many ways you, you know, it's just you, you end up working a lot more cross-functionally. Um, I, I like to use like the metaphor sometimes and I, you know, pulling this from like the messaging house framework of like, you know, how it is a metaphor, but I feel like as a PMM, if you're a solo PMM, you can't do much in your own room, so to speak, before you need to explore the rest of the house, you know, like what's, what's sales doing in their room, what's marketing, you know, the rest of the marketing org doing in theirs. Um, 
you know, same with customer success and product. And so I think like your ability to build those relationships a lot faster, being able to test within those teams and find comfortabilities and um, ways to move forward as tighter teams um, tends to be more effective and same with the type of feedback and results that you get with that it tends to be a lot smoother and quicker with the way you can test and iterate. Um, I would say that the con would be definitely, it can get a little bit lonely. And like when you're working with so many different stakeholders and not really being able to tie it back to um, like a team structure priority or strategy, you can sometimes over index on execution. And so some of you just sort of see you as like an, like an input output function of what you can do in product marketing versus being able to take a step back, think more strategically, and then have the time and breathing room to react to, you know, be proactive and, and act accordingly, right? Um, and now on the other hand, you know, when you have a, when you, when you operate as, you know, more of a product marketing team, um, which, you know, I'm doing currently in Fleetio, um, you, you have a lot more reach, right? Like I think when you're talking about the way that you can affect an organization broadly, um, you have more impact, you can drive more change management more effectively as well, because there's multiple of you driving home the same message with regards to, you know, the st strategic output that you can provide to the product marketing team, um, how you are, you know, going to be well-documented in any processes or playbooks. Um, and, and so I think like that aspect of showing your business impact um, as part of a team, you know, you, you obviously just get more hands and so you're, you tend to be able to index further. Um, I would say the con though, is it's easier to stay in your room. If I'm using that metaphor again, you know, you don't need to um, always be, be talking to stakeholders as actively as if you were a solo PMM. And so sometimes if you're not being careful, you can definitely be removed from the also the other teams and, um, and, and continuously, you know, getting that feedback to really know whether you're aligning properly with your stakeholders and when I think you can, yeah, that, that's definitely the sort of risk uh, from the uh, team format there. Yeah, I like that a lot. And I think to build off your home analogy, I think as a solo PMM, you have the power, maybe more so as, as opposed to being part of a larger team, but to call everybody together in the kitchen to collaborate, break bread, share a meal, you know, get, make things happen. Yeah. I like that analogy of when you're part of a group, it's easy to get stuck in your room. Maybe someone's bringing the meals to you and you're necessarily having to go seek that out. I'm sure we could go down this rabbit hole, this analogy much deeper, but, uh, but we won't, we won't, uh, go too far. Um, study anything you'd like to add before we jump to the next question? Yeah, just uh, building on to what Kevin said, I think when you have a more established team, like you do have more of a seat at the table, right? You can show that impact. Uh, and I think showing uh, product marketing's ROI is really, really important. Uh, being able to show the impact is, 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 I, I cannot, you know, um, overstate the importance of it. And I think that's something that when Kevin and I were working together at Suite and the rest of the amazing PMMs we had, as a team, we did an amazing job of it. Um, I also did uh, write an article for uh, PMA on the strategies that we implemented. So if anyone wants to check that out. On the um, solo PMM side, I, I think that it's good that more companies are realizing that they do need the product marketing function and it's amazing, but it also comes with lack of understanding and knowledge about product marketing. So I think um, along with the overwhelming uh, full plate that a solo PMM has, the additional thing that they have to take on, and it's very important, is constantly educating everyone in the company about what product marketing is, how they can help so that 
you know, we don't end up becoming maybe a content producing um, a machine or just like beautifying the, the the pitch deck. So I think that's something that I have to constantly do in my role where I'm establishing the function and people don't know uh, about the product marketing function as much as they should. So uh, I would, yeah, I think that's really important. Yeah, absolutely. It's very easy as a solo PMM to get pigeonholed into the areas that you personally excel at. And people can refer to you, as you said, the content person, the the sales enablement person, the sales deck person. And, you know, once you get into that groove, it's hard to sometimes break out of it. And I think the product marketers or the solo product marketers who are really good at championing the overall value of product marketing don't end up staying solo PMMs for much longer. Because typically other teams within the org realize the value of having this person brought into their conversations or their initiatives. And there's only one person. So you have teams fighting over that person's time. And that person ultimately says, hey, we need another me or we need two more me's because I can't be in all these places at once. So that's, I think, what, you know, take both your comments a step further. What, what elevates a good product marketer to an excellent product marketer is realizing, hey, I'm contributing so much value that I actually need more support and resources. I think oftentimes it's easy for product marketers, and I know I'm guilty of this, to shy away from asking for help. To say like, no, I got it all. You know, we're constant people pleasers. We can do everything. But I think it takes a mature and strong product marketer to realize, hey, I'm generating value and this is how. Think about how much more value product marketing as a function could generate if there were more of us. That's a wrap on another year and another season of the Product Marketing Life podcast. I wanted to end this episode with a huge thank you to all of my incredible guests, the team at the Product Marketing Alliance for supporting every aspect of the show, and to you, the listeners. Without all of the amazing people I just mentioned, including you, I'd literally be a crazy person alone in my office at home talking to myself for hours about a topic I love, product marketing. Thanks for a great year, and here's what lies ahead in 2024. For everyone still tuned in, thanks so much for listening, and if you enjoyed the podcast, please help us spread the word to other product marketers. Before we leave you to get on with your day, if you want to get involved, here are a few ways you can. If you're a product marketer and you want to come on the show and speak about your day, a specific topic, or your role in general, that's one option. If you want to flex your podcast hosting skills, being a guest host is another. And finally, if you or your company want to spot to an episode, there's a third. Thanks again and have a great morning, afternoon, or evening, wherever you are.